Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. How is it that this right-wing authoritarianism is spreading so rapidly across America and so deeply in the fabric of this country? This international scale of authoritarianism found that about a quarter of Americans basically test out as authoritarians, whereas only 6% of Germans do. What's going on here? On the line with us is Catherine Joyce, an investigative reporter with Salon, the author of two books, The Child Catchers, Rescue Trafficking, and the New Gospel of Adoption, and Quiverful, Inside the Christian Patriarchy Movement. She's received numerous awards for her work and uh, been published in Mother Jones, Vanity Fair, The Nation, and Newsweek, to name a few. Catherine Joyce, spelled just the way as K-A-T-H-R-Y-N, Joyce.com is her website, and also Catherine Joyce on Twitter or at Salon. Catherine, welcome to the program. You wrote this piece, How One Small Michigan College Turned Into a Pivot Point for the GOP Culture Wars, or How This Tiny Christian College is Driving the Rights Nationwide War Against Public Schools, actually, is a headline over at Salon. I had a cousin who's one of their children went to Hillsdale College, but this was like 20 years ago, I think. It, it's, it, I have no recollection of anybody talking about it being a radical right-wing bed of weird ferment. I mean, it, tell us what's going on here. Thank, thank you so much for having me, Tom. And yeah, I would agree with that. I've spoken to alumni who were there 20 or 30 years ago, and they say it's, it's just remarkably different than the school that they attended then. But this series, it's a, a three-part series that we rolled out this week, looking at the role that Hillsdale College is playing in just about all of the, the current wars, basically, over education, curricula, what teachers can teach, what books can be you know, held in school libraries. An awful lot of that tracks back to Hillsdale College, which is this small Christian private school in Michigan, just about 1,500 students, but this far outsized footprint politically. You know, back during the Trump administration, people referred to it as being a feeder school to the Trump administration because of how many of its alumni would end up finding positions as speechwriters or, or staff or attorneys within the administration or within the offices of Trump's allies on Capitol Hill. It just has a real kind of bevy of connections to a lot of the most significant right-wing actors in the country. And what's flown under the radar is they also have a very big footprint in K-12 education as well. So it's not just higher ed. So you open this piece with uh, the mood in Cosa Mesta in, this is California, was, you know, upbeat at this, at this school board meeting because, because Hillsdale College had come in and helped set up or participated in creating a, a local charter school, the Orange County Classical Academy. Tell us about this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so it's California. It's also specifically Orange County, which for, for many decades has been a really significant part of the conservative movement. Yeah, it was kind um, of Nixon's base it. back in the day. Yeah, they call it Nixonland for sure. But I think what's notable about this, it's it's not just any charter. This is a public school charter. This is a charter that is paid for with public tax dollars that is drawing finances away from the regular public school system. But this charter school, it's it's one of dozens that Hillsdale has helped set up around the country that follow Hillsdale's curriculum, which is really focused on 
uh, the idea of promoting Western civilization. So isn't, isn't that just code for white people? Well, this particular charter, Orange County Classical Academy, makes that more explicit than most. On their website, they talk about how we are mostly going to be reading white men because white men, as it so happens, uh, created most of you know the best art and, and literature and, and science and philosophy in history. And so they're, they're pretty unapologetic about that. They are also leaning pretty hard into the culture war in a number of other, other ways. They fly a pro-police thin blue lives flag at their school. They use a sex ed curriculum that is supposed to maximize parental involvement in practice. And an ACLU review found um, that means that it teaches that LGBTQ students might outgrow their orientation or their gender identity, that women who have abortions are destroying themselves. So it's really a very conservative school that is focused on this idea of Western civilization on one hand and um, this basically Christian nationalist presumption that the United States was founded on what they call Judeo-Christian principles. Judeo-Christian is, you know, religion scholars will tell you, not a real thing. In other words, um, the Bible, basically. Yeah, and, you know, a conservative Christian interpretation right. of it. Right. Right. With with the, with the uh, nasty Old Testament God in charge. How extensively I mean, you know, you've got this one public charter in California. How, how extensive is this uh, network or system and where's the money coming from? Sure. Um, so the system right now, you know, one of Hillsdale's initiatives is called the Barney Charter School Initiative, which they see as a means of redeeming public education by planting all these charter schools around. And so far, there are about 23 of those schools. There are about 53 schools in total that are you know, either running as full charters or are um, using uh, Hillsdale curriculum. Uh, a big part of that, if you remember Trump's 1776 commission, Hillsdale basically led that, and then they created a curriculum out of that. So they're teaching that now too, both at these charters and at other and public schools around the country. Uh, excuse me, that, and, and that yeah. 1776 curriculum is in an intentional counterpoint to the 1619 curriculum exactly. that, that you know, begins with you know, telling the history of slavery in America. Is that not, not the case? Absolutely. That's, that's exactly it. Um, it's, it's meant as a rebuttal uh, to, to that work by the New York Times that was arguing we need to look at slavery as having played a much more foundational role in U.S. history. And so counter to that, uh, the 1776 commission, report, and now curriculum have argued that, you know, the founders were all closet abolitionists, even if they, they owned slaves themselves, um, that the civil rights movement basically uh, did all the work it needed to do in the 1960s. And, you know, as soon as Martin Luther King, uh, you know, gave his I Have a Dream speech, um, right after that, they see pretty much any civil rights activity as having turned into uh, really toxic identity politics. Which well, that's, that's the position of John Roberts, you know, in, in, in the Shelby County decision. That's basically what he said. And, and, and now this is, you know, this is curriculum that is being taught to, to public school students uh, around the country. Um, wow. And you asked about finances. Mm -hmm. uh, just a quick note about that. Hillsdale College has a really astonishing endowment of almost $1 billion. Um, that's really unheard of for a school that size, for you know a tiny liberal arts college. This is Michigan. Is that Betsy DeVos money? Uh, partly it is Betsy DeVos money and uh, Prince family money, um, DeVos family money, um, more Amway money. Uh, you know, they have an awful lot of support from all sectors of the right. Uh, Hillsdale has become this stopping point, basically, on kind of a, a presidential hopeful tour, on a right-wing intellectual tour. Um, Chris Rufo, when he was starting to shape the ideas that would end up leading to this anti-critical race panic that we're in, went and spoke at Hillsdale. Um, Mike Pompeo has gone at Hillsdale and said, you know, we should be teaching this 1776 curriculum absolutely everywhere. So it's it really plays um, this surprisingly outsized role uh, within the conservative movement. I remember when Liberty University was the all the rage, you know, this uh, Jerry Falwell's university. And of course, his, his son kind of crashed and burned the reputation of that. Um, but there was a time when, uh, I, I, my recollection is it was uh, from the Reagan and Bush administrations right through the George W. Bush administration, um, graduates of Liberty University were playing an outsized role. 
Uh, has Hillsdale College, I mean, is there a, is there, are they following in the footsteps? Is this different? Are they competitors? Is this just the newest incarnation? Or am I drawing a parallel that just doesn't exist? No, I think that I think that's a really good point. I mean, there have been a handful of conservative right wing colleges that have played that sort of role. Yeah, like it was Liberty, Bob Jones um, back in the 50s and 60s. Sure. Bob Jones. Um, Patrick Henry College has has sent a lot of kids to go be interns in Washington. I think Hillsdale went a step further. They created an actual campus in Washington, um, you know, and it's that's actually just one of a number of centers they are setting up around the country. They have one in Connecticut. They're building one in California. Apparently, Christy Nome in South Dakota has offered to build them an entire campus. Um, but when they set up shop in, in Washington, D.C., um, which actually their, their campus was basically assembled and uh, built with the help of Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, they just really doubled down on the connections that they have with you know the, the biggest power players in the Republican Party. So there's this real back and forth. Um, you know, they ran a fellowship program with the Heritage Foundation and the, the Federalist Society to train senior level Washington staff. Um, they end up having this revolving door that, that brings right-wing political leaders or staff into Hillsdale to end up teaching journalism or, or lecture on government and politics. Amazing. So they just have, um, I think, a deeper um, and bigger yeah. footprint than yeah. any of those other schools. We're, we're talking with Catherine Joyce about her new piece uh, over at Salon, uh, how this tiny Christian college is driving the rights nationwide war against public schools. Catherine, we just have 50 seconds before we hit a break that I can't uh, control. The, 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 the far end of the right wing is just openly white supremacist and white nationalist. How close is Hillsdale to that? I mean, I think that, you know, as somebody, um, one of my sources explained to me, what their main function is, is giving a very respectable intellectual veneer to what is otherwise, um, you know, pretty rank right wing ideology. Uh, they, they publish pieces saying that diversity is not a strength. It is a solvent that helps dissolve the nation, that birthright citizenship is wrong. Um, and it's all kind of given this nice intellectual gloss by saying we're promoting Western civilization. You know, we're focused on on the best of the great books and that classical tradition. So so they make some of that stuff sound an awful lot better. Yeah. But wow. Amazing. Catherine Joyce, the, the piece is over at Salon.com. I encourage you to check it out. And uh, and you've got two subsequent pieces coming along behind it. Already out. Uh, the last Already one out. came out today. Okay, great. Catherine, it's great talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. And you can find Catherine Joyce, CatherineJoyce.com, K-A-T-H-R-Y-N. And, uh, also, that's her Twitter handle, Catherine Joyce. Michael in Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Hey there. Uh your your guest was speaking about universities and and all of that i'm here in greenville i'm a retired staff sergeant from the army mm -hmm. my wife was a master sergeant in the air force i five miles from my house is bob jones university it is a state funded university i thought it was about entirely private I mean, you know, oh, that's right. That's no. why they were forced to uh, integrate. They, yeah. they were the ones who litigated that. Yes. Uh, uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, they got busted because they actually had a written down rule against interracial dating. Right. And they lost their state funding for a couple of years. So now it's just not a written down rule. Right. Right. Right, I get it. Right, but I, uh, about six months ago, I, I saw on PBS a documentary uh, about uh, Billy Graham. Billy Graham, okay, Bob Jones University was uh, conceived in about 1923. In the 1930s, Billy Graham went there. It was too radical for him. Hmm. He quit. Hmm. He moved. Wow. And yet it is still state funded. Wow. Wow. That and the Citadel, which is, started which is the military the academy. War. Right. Both tax funded. Yeah. 
Although the Citadel, I mean, they, they went through their own uh, struggle with integration. I thought they were on the good side of things these days. They've gotten a whole lot better, but, but still, it's a thorn in my butt. <laughs> I, I get it, Michael. I absolutely get it. Michael, thanks for the call. I, I didn't know that uh, Bob Jones was too radical for B Billy Graham. I mean, I, I, I remember Billy Graham from when I was a kid, and I always thought of him as a fundamentally decent person. I see his son as a hustler, just a naked hustler. That's amazing. You learn something new every day. Michael, thank you very much for the call. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Lewis in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Lewis, what's on your mind today? Hi, uh, Tom. We need another crack at taking Tucker Carlson to court. And How so? For I know what? the first time. I know the first time it didn't work. I think this time it will because he's radicalized many people and is inspiring hate crimes. And I think this time lawyers can take them to court and show. Like in in many cases, people that have committed hate crimes have even cited Fox News and Tucker Carlson. And I think somebody like an entity like the Defamation League, I think they should have a crack at this. And my question is, how do we get them to do it? Like, do we call them up? Do we get in contact with them? And Well, if you join the Anti-Defamation League or the Southern Poverty Law Center or the American Civil Liberties Union, I mean, there's a number of organizations that might be able to, to pull together what you're talking about. I, I don't know if it would even be possible for it to be something like a... Uh, class action lawsuit. I, you know, I, I, I suspect not. But, um, but maybe. I think you know, class action lawsuits typically are just for finance. Well, you could do it for finance. I've been waiting for a group of families of people you know, of, uh, where grandpa died because he was watching Fox News uh, to sue right, that organization. Right. And, and uh, you know, I'm just I'm mystified as to why it hasn't happened yet. It, the right is so quick to use lawsuits you know, and, and, and legal procedures. But I don't know, Lewis. I, you know, I mean, the, the way to reach out to these organizations, of course, is to join them. And it typically does not cost that much to join one of them. And then, you know, you can communicate with them. But it's a good idea. Lewis, thank you for the call. Carolyn in uh, Vienna, Maine. Hey, Carolyn, what's on your mind today? Bye. Okay. And so my message was, or my idea, is to sell the AK-47s that are still in the United States and the AR-15s with some of the monies that were appropriated for the Ukrainians to sell them back to the government and get rid of them from the United States. Well, that's what Australia did in 1998 after the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania, which is a, you know, basically an Australian state. And uh, the people of Australia were so horrified by that that they instituted a nationwide gun buyback program, brought back, as I recall, over 600,000 weapons. And Australia is a fairly small country population-wise. I mean, physically, they're the size of the United States, but population-wise, they're relatively small. And uh, it worked spectacularly. And that mass shooting was like the sixth or eighth in a row. I mean, they'd had a bunch of them, and they've only had one since then. 
I mean, it just it put an end to the mass shootings. It, it reduced radically gun violence and suicides, gun suicides in, in Australia. And uh, the people seem quite happy with it. So I, I think, Catherine, you're on to something. Yes, thank I, you. I, you're welcome. I think it would be a great idea. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Alan J. Lichtman, and it's titled Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. This is from the introduction, uh, titled The Book That Must Be Written. On April 28, 1996, 28-year-old Martin Bryant stopped at an inn near his home of Newtown in Tasmania, Australia, and shot to death its two owners. He then drove to the former penal colony and tourist attraction of Port Arthur, where he lunched at a cafe. After eating, Brian pulled from his sports bag a semi-automatic rifle with a 30-round magazine that he had legally purchased through a newspaper ad. With no provocation, he began firing at patrons in the cafe and its gift shop. Before the police stopped his shooting spree, Bryant had murdered 35 and wounded 18 others. His motive remains unknown. There were people everywhere, bodies, said witness Lynn Beavis. I thought at the time, being a nurse, I've seen dead people, I've seen blood, I've seen things like this, but what I saw in there, nobody but perhaps a soldier would know what that was like. The leadership of a shocked nation responded to the Port Arthur massacre, not with thoughts and prayers, but with decisive action. The country's conservative-led government rebuffed their gun lobby and its American ally, the NRA, to adopt comprehensive national gun controls. In a 2015 broadside labeled Australia, There Will Be Blood, the NRA charged that those regulations, which Australia significantly tightened as of 2002, have, quote, robbed Australians of their right to self-defense and empowered criminals. If the NRA was right, America, with its lax control over firearms for alleged self-defense, should be one of the world's safest countries, certainly far safer than Australia, where criminals presumably evade gun controls to prey on defenseless, law-abiding citizens. Yet in the latest reporting year, gun homicides claimed 14,542 American lives, compared to 27 in Australia. And all homicides took 19,510 American lives, compared to 222 in Australia. Since the NRA issued its warning, firearm homicides have declined in Australia, while soaring by 3,534 in the U.S. An American is now over 30 times more likely per capita than an Australian to be murdered by a gun, and seven times more likely to be murdered by any means. If we had rates comparable today to Australia's, some 14,000 American lives would have, would have been saved from firearm homicides in 2017 alone. By the gun lobby's twisted logic, Japan, which has one of the world's strictest gun control laws, should be drenched in innocent blood. Yet out of a population of 127 million, shooters in Japan murdered only three persons and injured only five in firearm assaults throughout 2017. Australia and Japan are not outliers. As compared to residents of our closest peer democracies in the G7 group of nations plus Australia, an American in 2017 was over 20 times more likely to die from a gun homicide. The gun lobby would have you forget that gun deaths are not limited to murders. In 2017, 23,854 Americans died from gun suicides. 64% more than were killed in hot firearm homicides. As compared to the peer nations, the 2017 per capita rate of firearm suicides in the United States was seven times higher, while the rate of suicides by other means was 40% lower. These other democracies all have strict firearm regulations. None has a constitutional right to keep or bear arms, a distinction the United States shares worldwide only with Guatemala, whose gun murder rate is the third highest of some 195 nations worldwide. Why has America lagged behind the democratic world in protecting its citizens from needless death and injury? The culprit is not spending by the NRA on campaigns and lobbying, which other pressure groups exceeded. The real problem is that which gun control advocates fear to name the Second Amendment. Led by the NRA, the gun lobby exploits a historically defective, perverse reinvention of this amendment to inspire their grassroots supporters, sell guns, and provide constitutional cover for their op opposition to making us safer by regulating firearms. The competing movement for gun control has floundered in response to the gun lobby's triumphant marketing of the Second Amendment. Gun control advocates have righteous zeal and noble motives, but lack a winning strategy. 
Instead of forthrightly refuting the lobby's bogus claims, the gun control movement has instead fallen into the trap of lamely insisting, we support the Second Amendment, but we also support responsible gun control. With such a self-defeating strategy, the movement can never win. It plays on the gun lobby's home turf and fails to rally the American majority that favors stricter firearms regulations. It provokes only scorn from a gun lobby that dismisses yes-but assurances as rank hypocrisy. And it ignores the clear history and the true meaning of the Second Amendment itself. The movement for gun control must strike hard with a new strategy. Repeal of the Second Amendment is not only right, but realistic. It would break open the political logjam and open a path for the comprehensive national gun control and safety measures that have eluded the American people for so long. None of these measures would confiscate firearms or stop Americans from using guns for hunting, sports shooting, antique collecting, or legitimate self-defense. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. These form the Second Amendment. Book Repeal the Second Amendment by Alan J. Lichtman. Mike in Reading, Pennsylvania. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. Uh, yeah, I just read something. Uh, wondering if you had heard it that uh, there was a bank in California that loaned Trump a hundred million dollars for Trump Tower in New York. I saw the story that that he had gotten the loan. Uh, the, the the story that I read did not identify the bank that had given him the loan, which was my big question. I mean, who the hell is loaning money to Donald Trump? What do you know about it, uh, Mike? Yeah, I. I can't remember the name. I saw it, and I can't remember it. It's a California bank, mm -hmm. and I know it's run by a Trump donor, shall we say. Oh, God. Yeah. So I, um, I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm always yeah. amazed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I caught that his son Eric, who uh, you know tends to run off at the mouth in, in inopportune ways at inopportune moments. You know, oh, yeah. he famously said, we don't need cash. We get all the money we want from Russia back in 2015 or 2016. He said that during the campaign. Yeah, that exactly. He, he recently said, yeah, we're, we're swimming in money right now because we got a $100 million loan. Trump, you know, of course, bragged that he was the king of debt. Uh, he has financed his whole entire lifestyle on debt. He's figured out how to, how to use other people's money to keep himself living like a king. And, uh, and I think, frankly, you know, he thinks that when he dies, he doesn't care what happens to even his own kids. And, and of course, you know, yeah. Jared and Ivanka have, now they've got, Jared's running a billion dollar fund now that he hooked up with the Emiratis and the <laughs> Qataris and the Saudis uh, or whoever, you know, because Trump just opened the door and in walked to the Kushner, you know, the Kushner hustlers after he gave a pardon to Kushner's daddy for being a professional <laughs> grifter and con man. Yep, so the grift just keeps on going, yeah. next generation. Families that grift together, what, stay together, I guess? <laughs> I guess, I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Michael, thank you very much for the call. Thanks for the heads up on that. I, it's, it's not surprising. Alex in Houston, Texas. Hey, Alex, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I just wanted to follow up what you were saying about between uh, Rick Scott and Orban, Putin, and all these you know, personality types, let's say, who, you know, parrot the same line. It reminds me of the Joseph Goebbels quote, you know, the chief propagandist or the Hitler's second-hand, right-hand man. You know, he said, uh, accuse your enemies what you are guilty of. Exactly. And exactly. then you hear people say, and this is actually a little bit out of my league as far as articulating it, uh, because, I mean, you see it all the time. What the Republicans are complaining about with their little persecution complex, they're telling you what they're going to do in the future. Yeah. And I don't know if they're conscious of it or not. And I think, I know as a psychotherapist, you would be able to elaborate on this. And I'm interested to know how does projection, this idea of projection play into this? Because I mean, it's just projection, right? It could be. And, and uh, you know, I think probably, I don't think we need to go down uh, very far down that particular rabbit hole, though. I think it simply represents a worldview. And so when Rick Scott says, this is not the time to be timid, this is the time to be bold, he said, in their new socialist America, everyone will obey and no one will be allowed to complain. If you speak up, boom, you will be canceled. Uh, you know, what Rick Scott is saying, I think, is that in his worldview, that's how political parties behave. 
Yeah. And therefore, if he's in charge of the Republican Party and he has, you know, he's, he's arguably one of the three most powerful Republicans in, in, in federal office right now, that's where he goes. That's where the GOP goes. So, so Alex, I, I, you know, I get it and I think you're right. And if there's a protest, you know, throw protesters into unmarked vans and so on and so forth, you know? Yeah, it's, it happened right here in Portland. It happened in Seattle, yeah. and, you know, when, when Donald Trump was president with unmarked, yeah. unmarked police wearing no identification. And it turned out they were yeah. from the Border Patrol, which Trump was turning into his own little private police force and is still just, you know, rife with uh, Nazism and, and corruption. It's amazing. Right. Alex, thanks for the call. Chris in San Antonio. Hey, Chris, what's up? Hey, Tom, um, I just have a question. I've never heard anybody address it. Is there any way that we can see the unredacted Mueller report? We certainly should. I mean, Mueller was very clear that he designed that report for public consumption. And, and uh, I, you know, we all fully expected that, that once we got, you know, once Bill Barr was out, that we would, we would see an unredacted version of it. And, uh, you know, I, I know that they've reduced the number of redactions, but I don't know why we're not, Chris. I, I just... And is there, I forget the name of it, but it's the, that the Freedom of Information Act or right. something. Is there any way somebody can make a request? To they have tried. To... The American news media have sued for an unredacted version in the courts. I, you know, I, I, I don't recall the details of it. I mean, it might have been some weird Trumpy judge, or maybe there's something in there that, that you know, in retrospect shouldn't have been in there. Um, but I, I just don't know the answer to, the, to, to why Merrick Garland has not released it. I certainly think America deserves to know if Donald Trump was a Russian asset. I mean, just explicitly yeah, a just, Russian asset. And I think that's the essence of it. Yeah, I just I, I wish that there'd be more um, kind of fervor, you know, more people bringing this up to kind of. I know we have a million other things going yeah, on right now, but I just... It's kind of in the distant past now, but, you know, and the impeachment failed, you know, around it. But, I, you know, I, I get what you're saying. Chris, thanks for the call. It was a good, very good question. We'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Hey, the evidence is clear. It's time to prosecute Donald Trump. Lawrence Tribe and Dennis Aftergod have put together an amazing piece. It's over at The Guardian. On March 8th, they point out, a jury took only three hours to render a guilty verdict against Guy Reffitt. He was one of the January 6th insurrectionists. And that's the same venue, this, the, the, the courts in, in the District of Columbia, where Donald Trump would be tried. Newspapers have been saying, well, it's, well, the New York Times, for example, in a March 3rd story said, excuse me, said that it would be difficult to build a criminal case because uh, the high burden of proof, uh, including questions about Mr. Trump's mental state, like don't even bother Justice Department is essentially what the New York Times was writing. And these lawyers, Lawrence Tribe, law professor, are coming out and saying, no, you're wrong. There are two laws under which he could easily be prosecuted, USC, uh, 18 U.S.C. 371, conspiring to defraud the United States, and 18 U.S.C. 1512, Section 2, obstructing a congressional proceeding. They both, uh, you know, they're both criminal offenses. They note uh, regarding uh, Section 371, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled the conspiracies to defraud the United States include Plots entered, quote, for the purpose of impairing, obstructing, or defeating the lawful functions of any department of government, end quote. 
the Supreme Court also ruled that, that, that violations of this law include, quote, using deceit, craft, or trickery, or means that are dishonest. And boy, has Trump done that. I mean, first he knew from, he lost 60, more than 60 court cases. The only one he won, he didn't actually win on the, on the principles. It was on a weird technicality. But every single one of these court cases where he said, oh, yeah, I won the election, they said, no, you didn't. You lost. Secondly, as, as uh, uh, you know, five of his, as we, as we now know from numerous reports, five of his top officials, including his attorney general, told him that unequivocally that there are no fraud. There was no fraud in the election. And certainly no fraud that could have changed the outcome of the election. Third, Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffsenperger, told Trump the same thing when Trump demanded that he find 11,780 11, votes. Remember that? So that just lays it out that Trump's intent was corrupt, that Trump knew he lost the election, that his state of mind was, you know, to, to quote the law, evil. Fourth, they note, Trump's speech immediately before the, the, the riot or the insurrection included a provable and telling lie, says Lawrence Tribe. The, he, he lied. He said, uh, you know, we're going to march to the Capitol. I'm going to go with you. Well, he had no intention of going with them. He didn't go with them. He went back to the White House to watch it all on TV. And that reflects, you know, Trump's uh, further reflects his corrupt state of mind. He wanted to stay away from the violence that he knew he was inciting. Fifth, they say, Trump's failure for three hours to call off the siege after it began is, you know, a complete failure to, uh, to honor at least his oath of office, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. It was, uh, the tribe says this was manifestly depraved. And sixth, he says when Trump belatedly, uh, after the, after the, basically, you know, the, the, the thing petered out. He did this video where he called them patriots and said, remember this day forever. A federal judge wrote about that, that, quote, a reasonable observer could read that tweet as ratifying the violence and other illegal acts that took place that day. And then finally, Trump is claiming willful, you know, is claiming ignorance of, of the, the fact that he lost the election. Sorry, uh, willful ignorance is equivalent to knowledge, according to the law. Um, you know, if, if somebody comes to you and says, uh, here, hold on to this package, I'll give you $10,000, you have a good reason to wonder what the hell is in that package and if you're breaking the law. That's, you know, this, this sort of thing. So uh, John Eastman's claims to Donald Trump that, you know, he could, he could overturn the election and all this kind of stuff, nonsense, utter nonsense. So it is time to prosecute Donald Trump, and I am completely down with that. Anyhow, it's Anything Goes Friday. Let's pick up your phone calls. Johnny in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hey, Johnny, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to ask you a question as if we were across the table drinking a beer. And it's regarding messaging. Democrats not getting the messaging across and to change that. But the question I want to propose to you is, do you think the Black Lives Matter if they had said Black Lives Matters too, would have softened the impact and they purposefully did not include that too at the end of the um, Black Lives Matter. And when it comes to this uh, talk of neoliberalism, liberal, you can conflate that with the Democratic Party, but you keep pushing that neoliberalism and do you think that it's time to stop using that term? Yeah. With regard to neoliberalism, we're kind of stuck with it, Johnny. It, it was, you know, the phrase was invented in the 1940s uh, by what became the Mont Pelerin Society by uh, von Mises and, and uh, Hayek, von Hayek and, and uh, Milton Friedman. And it's in use all around the world. Everybody understands what it is. There are dozens of books about it. I just finished writing a book about it. Uh, you're not going to get I away from that word. I realize it has the word liberal in it, which has a completely different meaning to Europeans than it does to Americans, but uh, I, exactly. I, I don't have an alternative for it. With regard to Black Lives Matter too, I don't think that you negotiate with terrorists. I mean, the bottom line is that the white racists who, and, and you see them on, on Fox News, Tucker Carlson and these guys, and, and, and on, uh, you know, in, in, the, in Republican politics, 
who are constantly trashing BLM, Black Lives Matter, and the movement, and trying to you know continually tie it to uh, this the sporadic incidents of violence that happened, and, and particularly try to tie it to the violence that happened in Portland uh, and Seattle that was mostly done by white people, by the way, um, who, who call themselves anarchists. I, I just don't think that you uh, that there's any reason to criticize the folks who came up with Black Lives Matter for their for their language, no matter what they had said. Uh, they would be attacked by these by these racists. I mean, it's, it just comes down to that. Johnny, thank you for the call. It's a thoughtful, couple of thoughtful questions there. Uh, David in Chicago. Hey, David, what's up? Hi, thank you for taking my call. My um, this kind of ties in. You were talking about inequality, and and something that's caught my attention more and more is the corporate buying of of homes, of private homes, way over market price. Corporations like BlackRock making it difficult for middle-class people to acquire wealth by purchasing houses. And uh, it's part of the corporatocracy, the losing of our democracy. And I guess the question is, how do we make people aware of it, and what can government do about it? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote an op-ed about it at a Hartman Report about, I don't know, two months ago maybe, um, in which I went through all these different companies. And there's also foreign foreign countries. People from foreign countries are using U.S. Uh, residential real estate as a place to park money. Um, you know, in some cases, corrupt money. In some cases, just a you know a safe place to put money. And and you're absolutely right, David. It is a huge crisis right now, and a large part of why housing prices are so inflated. I mean, we've 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 seen uh, 20% increases in ho in housing prices here in Portland just in the last two years. Um, the re one of the reasons that they're so inflated is because these these giant corporations, these hedge funds and and investor groups are coming in and buying, you know, just buying up all the real estate they can find and and then turning them into rentals and, and pulling more and more single home, single family home uh, uh, purchased properties where, where in individual families can build that wealth that, that takes you into the middle class are just being taken off the market and people are being forced to rent because that's all that's available. I think it's a crisis. I think it's a crisis that requires legislation. It's going to be really hard to do anything about it because these same billionaires who are buying this property and, and doing this kind of stuff own the Republican Party and more than a few Democrats. But I think that single family home investment kind of stuff, there should be a limit on that. Uh, thanks for the call, Johnny. Uh, David, excuse me. Mike in Lamita, California. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, Tom. First, I have to credit the inspiration for this call to Lalo Alcaraz, who does the comic strip La Cucaracha. Okay. And he'll be on KPFK four hours from now. Cool. But uh, this is about the uh, demands or requests being made by Russia's ambassador to the U.S. media, uh, whose name I hesitate to say because it sounds too much like one of the banned words for American airwaves. But in any event, he's proposed that uh, President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, reveal her uh, scholastic aptitude test scores and law school admission test scores as condition of employment. Yeah, I don't, I don't recall anybody asking for any of Trump's nominees to do that, do you? Uh, Amy Coney Barrett well, was never asked, and, and hers, that, her credentials yeah, well, are the that, weakest of all of them. That was then, and this is now. So yeah. I say fair enough. Okay. If the sucker uh, raising this issue will just permit publicly the college boards to reveal his SAT score <laughs> and publicly give President Biden leave to reveal why he was denied employment by the CIA. Now, Wait a minute. Which knowledge, member of Congress are you talking about here, Mike? I'm talking about the, uh, the bloviator on a certain propaganda channel whose name I also hesitate to repeat. You're talking about Tucker Carlson. Okay, yeah. No, I get it. I, I have no problem, uh, you know, naming him. I, you, can, you can refrain, but I think people need to understand who we're talking about. Um, yeah. Go Fair ahead. enough. Continue. Fair enough. So anyway, uh, I, I really don't think he was uh, a, considered a security risk at that time. I think uh, it was probably just a paucity of the commodity in which that uh, agency deals, and yeah. I do not mean central. Okay. Uh, so anyway, if the uh, soccer won't agree to the release of his personnel information by the CIA, 
then in the interest of even-handedness and just so President Biden won't look like a weak leader, he should order the FBI to complete the background check of Justice Kavanaugh, which his predecessor cut short. Yeah. Yeah, we only saw 1% of all his papers from his time in the Bush administration working on torture and stuff like that. We know nothing about his time in previous uh, Republican administrations. We know nothing about his finances. Um, we, you know, we know nothing about how he got into the, I mean, you know, uh, Beerborn Brett was uh, arg arguably the most opaque, although uh, Amy Barrett was uh, the, most, uh, the most hustled through. Mike, thanks for the call. Mark in uh, Lexington, North Carolina. Hey, Mark, what's up? What's on your mind? Good afternoon, Tom. How are you? Good. What's up? Uh, yeah, I had one question I, I thought you might expand on. Uh, how long are, is Biden going to use the Roosevelt playbook? Uh, Winston Churchill once said, you can always count on the United States to do the right thing after they've exhausted every single other option. My, my guess is he'll do that until Friday. And the reason I say that is that on Thursday, Biden is participating in a meeting of all the leaders of NATO. And the president of Estonia, which is a NATO country, and one of the Baltic states that shares a border with Russia and is very nervous, the president of Estonia has come out and said, NATO is at risk. What we are seeing here, even though it's an attack on a non-NATO country, is bringing that attack to the border of NATO. And we and NATO needs to respond. He he wants NATO to to openly support Ukraine, and that probably is going to be the main topic on the table. My guess is that it's going to take just like it did with Franklin Roosevelt. It's going to take some sort of an attack on America or on American forces or on some NATO country or some NATO force to be the trigger. You know, like Pearl Harbor was that would say that would pr finally provide him with an opportunity or an excuse to get in. And, you know, whether that's a good thing for the United States and for our interests and whether that could lead to nuclear war are all open questions. And therefore, it's just an incredibly serious decision. And, and, well, and personally, go ahead. personally, I feel like this. I think Putin is quite happy with his huge billion dollar Dutch, uh, his lavish lifestyle, everything that he enjoys, all the perks of his uh, dictatorship. And I don't think he is really, I, he might threaten nuclear war, but I don't think he's looking forward to living the rest of his life in an underground uh, bomb shelter eating out of cans. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I think that he may consider using battlefield nukes, um, a decision that may well you know, blow back on him badly, but uh, I think the odds of all-out nuclear war are small. But you know, keep in mind, people saying the odds of war are small just before wars happen. Uh, you know, history is littered with folks like that. I, you know, so I, I, You're right. I, I you know, we, we, we really, uh, particularly, you know, leading up to World War One, we really do need to be very, very careful here. And I'm, I am not saying, okay, let's go attack Russia or let's provoke, you know, a world war. And, and frankly, I'm not even to the point yet of saying that we need to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine. I do have a lot of confidence in the Biden administration. We, we finally have a rational administration in Washington D.C. And I'm willing to follow God, their lead. Bad. Yeah, amen. Mark, thanks a lot for the call. We'll be right back. Hartman University Book Club today. We're reading from It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America by David K. Johnston. This is from page 61, the chapter titled Forgetting the Forgotten Man. In 2010, the U.S. Department of Labor created a website to honor workers who died on the job. Quote, more than 4,500 workers lose their lives on the job every year. Below are the names of just a few who have died in recent months. OSHA's mission is to prevent workplace injuries, illnesses, and death. End quote. That Occupational Safety and Health Administration webpage was intended to highlight and humanize workplace deaths to ensure awareness of tragedies, especially those that could have been avoided, according to Jordan Barab, an assistant secretary of labor during the Obama administration. Barab explained, without information like this, fatality statistics are just raw, sterile numbers. The purpose of adding names and circumstances was to impress people with the tragedy that workers and their families face day after day. In August 2017, Trump's Labor Department quietly removed the preamble and the names when it killed the web page. 
It also took down, without public announcement, the fatality inspection data for all years prior to 2017. Those are just two of many other Trump administration actions inimical to worker safety. Others included no longer posting press releases about deaths resulting from unsafe working conditions, delaying rules to reduce sickness and death from inhaling silica and beryllium at work, delaying rules to lower the risk of railroad engineers and truck drivers falling asleep at the switch or wheel because of untreated sleep apnea, and the appointment of a, to the Supreme Court of a judge who held that a company had the right to fire a worker who chose not to freeze to death on the job. A reasonable person listening to Donald Trump's inaugural address would never have expected these and other actions, assuming he believed what Trump said. Trump declared, the forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no more. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement, the likes of which the world has never seen before. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens, end quote. Those men and women were forgotten again the following week. And it's not just workers whose interests were forgotten, not to mention who were put in danger. By deciding not to implement a rule to reduce the chances of truck drivers and train operators falling asleep at the wheel, Trump put at risk the lives of families driving along the highway, people riding on passenger trains, and many others. The White House called it President Trump's war on regulation. In his weekly radio address in early May, he declared that we've removed one job-killing regulation after another, and they're not pretty, and they're going. And believe me, we're just getting started on regulations. They're gone. Removal of data on workplace deaths, which averaged 13 per day, infuriated Jordan Barab, who was Obama's number two at OSHA. As a private citizen, Barab created a web page to keep track of the names of the dead and the reasons they were killed on the job. He called it, OSHA won't tell you who died in the workplace, we will. After the election, Barab's concerns that the Trump administration would be bad for workers increased when he asked where the Trump beachhead team was and learned that none was coming. Each incoming administrator sends people to scope out federal agencies, learn who does what, and get a feel for the place in advance. Then the incoming administration sends its landing team, the people who will initially implement its policies, for each agenda. Ready to agency. When no beachhead team came up, Barab figured it meant worker safety simply was not a priority for Trump. He hoped that was the worst of it, nothing more than apathy about worker safety. But when the landing team arrived, Barab real, realized trouble was coming for American workers. And it was not official apathy, but the start of assaults on workers' rights and safety. Barab said most of them had no idea they were going to labor and no interest in workers' issues either. What they did have was a mandate to delay, repeal, or weaken regulations that protected workers as part of Trump's plan to eliminate, quote, any regulation that is outdated, unnecessary, bad for workers, or contrary to the national interest, end quote. The first sign came when Trump nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Gorsuch was an acolyte of Antonin Scalia, whose seat he would be taking. Like Scalia, he said statutes should be literally read, and if that made no sense, well, that was a problem for Congress. Also like Scalia, he had a habit of consulting dictionaries, often following Scalia's practice of relying on the third, fourth, or even lesser definition of a word when it supported his jurisprudence. Trump's nomination alarmed unions. Jody Calamine, a communications worker of America lawyer, told Gorsuch's Senate confirmation hearing that Gorsuch, quote, is a threat to working people's health and safety, end quote. Calamine cited Gorsuch's dissent in the 2016 case to make his point. That dissent, he said, reveals an anti-worker bias and features a judicial activism that will ultimately put workers' lives at risk, end quote. Those are unusually strong words about a Supreme Court nominee, but a review of the case shows Gorsuch has little regard for human life, at least when it comes to employers' power over their workers. He considers a rigid interpretation of the law more important. The case was about a law Congress passed giving workers the right to refuse dangerous tasks. Gorsuch said, no, you may not refuse. It's even worse than you think by David K. Johnston. Another story I wanted to tell you, by the way, Citigroup is the fourth largest bank in the United States. And the Texas Republicans uh, have their, 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 they're just wringing their hands over this. They are very, very upset. Uh, you know that you know they passed their their uh, bounty anti-abortion law, and you can sue anybody who helps somebody get an abortion. 
which would include anybody who presumably writes a check for somebody to hop on a plane out of Texas and go to, say, Kansas and get an abortion. But Citibank is now saying that as one of the benefits of being a Citibank employee in Texas, if you need to leave the state to get an abortion, we'll pay for it. Not the abortion, but for the travel. Uh, this is in a new regulatory filing with the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission on March 15th. Uh, they said, quote, in response to changes in reproductive health care laws in certain states in the U.S., beginning in 2022, we will provide travel benefits to facilitate access to adequate resources. And Republicans in Texas are just flipping out about this. Um, the the uh, uh, Republican Party of Texas Chairman Mac Rinaldi said this is appalling, and uh, there are, they're, they're, they're telling Republicans, don't patronize Citibank. Right, good luck with that. Um, but uh, it really gets interesting. I, you know, and I wonder if City is going to be, you know, if somebody, some bozo thinks they're going to they're going to sue Citibank for this thing. We'll see. Anyhow, back with your calls right on the other side of this break. Uh, there are, as they say in the radio business, open lines. Stick around. We'll be right back. And welcome back, Kim in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Kim, what's on your mind today? Well, I, I uh, uh, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to mention a theory that I have, and I'm not educated. I don't have higher education, uh, but I was in the Navy, and I did weather in the Navy. Mm-hmm. I believe that the reason that they took Chernobyl and they opened the door briefly because you had that spike in uh, uh, radiation was to test and see how much radiation was inside the dome. And then they turned off the power to the, um, to the plant, and I think they're waiting for that radiation to build up to a certain level. They will leave. They will punch a hole in the dome, and they will blame it on the technicians and engineers that are that they have hostage. I, you and know, I, I, I get your theory, side. Kim. I've I've read similar theories on on the internet. Um, I, I I would point out that they have restored the power, uh, the backup power to Chernobyl, so that they can cool that nuclear power. Uh, number one, and that number two, the dome was never, or the uh, the collapsed containment vessel was never opened, that the increased radiation levels in the area were because the dirt, the top couple inches of topsoil, you know, within a 20-mile radius of Chernobyl is heavily contaminated. And when they ran a bunch of trucks through there, they stirred the dust up, it got in the air, and boom, you were measuring radiation. And it looks like the reason they took Chernobyl was because it's right on the road from Belarus to Kiev. And they just needed to get that road. They needed to get that whole area, and locking down Chernobyl was part of that process. But, you know, anything's possible. Anything's possible. But that's my understanding. And I realize it's a little more benign explanation, but I, but I, I believe that's what happened. Um, uh, Kim, thank you for the call. Don in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hey, Don, what's up? Hey, yeah, I just I was wanted to speak to basically fascism you were speaking about earlier and and corruption um and what i feel like we need we need a a leader that reaches people kind of like trump does they trump supporters believe the conspiracy theories he promulgates and they follow them because one underlying truth uh, people know it at a subconscious level that corruption is at a level it hasn't been at in a very long time uh, we know this in our hearts, and I think we need to get people on the same side. And the only way we can effectively do this is to equally pursue corruption on both sides. So we need a leader on the left who's willing to go after. Well, I think we've got that left. in Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, if nobody else. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I, I agree. I, I just, I don't. And, and the Bernie Progressive Sanders Caucus in the House, people. you know, Ro Khanna. Yeah, I, I mean, Pocan. I completely agree. I just don't feel like anybody has really, truly, I, I don't know. I'm just hopeful that somebody is out there that actually connects with people. And and, 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 and I just don't feel like, because if you listen, I know a lot of people on the right, and, and they basically think Sanders is the devil, you know? It, it, you need somebody who, who we can all get behind. I don't know who that is. But I, I think that's well. At the really moment, how about idea. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? <laughs> I mean, you know, we've yeah, that's what we have now. We have yeah. a president and a vice president, and and, and uh, you know, uh, on specific issues, we can agree or disagree with them. But I think, uh, generally speaking, I, I'm also, you know, 
I'm old enough to remember when one of the Republicans' slogans back in the day was politics stops at the water's edge. Don't criticize, in fact, this was used a lot during the Nixon administration to try to stop criticism of Nixon's policies in Vietnam. You know, they, how dare you criticize our president during a time of war? Remember the love it or leave it? It was a bumper sticker. It was a big deal in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, stop talking about Nixon. That's how Republicans used to talk. Now all they do is trash a president during times of war. Don, thanks for the call. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.